Welcome back, everyone. Come and find your pew. And um, going to be hearing from Bill. So we're in this series on the kingdom of God. Uh, we're calling it the ecosystem of God's kingdom. Understanding what it is we're praying for when we say your kingdom come. And uh, as always, you can catch up with previous talks on our website, um, podcasts. And if you haven't discovered them yet, I also really recommend Bill's Bible with Bill podcast that are also on our YouTube channel. They're brilliant. So um, they're really good. They're really good. Um, great. So le- let's pray. And then I'll hand over to Bill to introduce himself some more. So uh, Father, yeah, I just want to thank you again for the opportunity to be here together. And I uh, pray that we're like a well-plowed field this morning that's ready to receive some good seed and uh, and to feed and, and learn on what on, on your word as Bill teaches us today. So give us, um, help shape us into good soil that, that receives this well and uh, can be changed and mature through it. Amen. Thank you. Hello. Uh, so about a month ago, I, I did a talk... Um, which was the first of three, and, and I'm calling them uh, What is the Kingdom? But actually the first talk about a month ago was mainly uh, critiquing how people use the word kingdom in Christian circles today. And I, I was mainly saying uh, what I, I think the kingdom isn't. Um, and I know because uh, some of you have given me feedback that you found it intensely frustrating because by the end you wanted to know, well, okay, it isn't that, so what, what the heck is it? And, and I know some of you thought that um, this talk would be a week later, but in fact, we've kept you in suspense for a month. Um, this is, of course, all planned. It's part of a spiritual discipline that Alice and I have cooked up in order to, to breed patience, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm sure it's worked very well. But today's the day, so... Um, you're probably sitting there with your arms folded thinking, okay, clever clogs, you know, you, you, you know what the kingdom isn't, so what, is, what do you think it is? So here goes. Uh, you, you may remember that right at the end of that talk, uh, I, I kind of um, suggested that when Jesus emerged uh, in Galilee and, and started proclaiming that the kingdom of God was near he got an amazing response. People were flocking to hear his message. Um, and so those people then, uh, it really meant something to them. They knew what the kingdom meant, and they were. it was a message they'd been longing to hear. This announcement that the kingdom was near was something they were desperate to hear. So they had an idea in their mind about what the kingdom meant, and it meant something very attractive they were desperate to find out more. And I was suggesting that they thought that way. They had that understanding because they were steeped in the Old Testament. And therefore, if we want to know what Jesus meant, we need to kind of get into their shoes. Because he was communicating to them. He was talking their language. And if we want to know what he meant when he talked about the kingdom of God then we kind of need an Old Testament mindset. And so that's where we're going to start. 
So, in your Bibles, where do you think the first description of what God's kingdom is like um, lives? Where do you think it is? What page number in your Bibles do you think contains the first beginnings of a description? <laughs> I agree. I think page one. Um, for exa- Oh, I've got a clicker. I don't need to say. Next slide, please, Michael. Let's try this. Here we go. This is Genesis 1, 28. Um, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What do kings and queens do? What's the verb that describes the activity of being a king? They rule. They rule and reign. Um, The first mention of ruling is in Genesis chapter 1. And I, I would suggest that the principles of God's kingdom, how God's kingdom works... Are, are laid out um, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's, it kind of lays the foundation. And obviously much, much more needs to be said. But it kind of lays the principles, the foundation for an understanding of God's kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to read Genesis 1 and 2. And the, but the question we're going to be asked, a bit like Chris was doing before, you know, reading the chapter of the, uh, the story of the centurion with the question, what is faith? We're going to read Genesis 1 and 2 with the question, what does God's rule look like? What does God's rule feel like? Um, as, as portrayed in Genesis 1 and 2. So, um, When God created, what kind of world did he create? These verses may be slightly familiar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now I know you love Hebrew, so we're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew And we're going to look at that phrase, formless and empty, or formless and void. Does anyone know what that is in Hebrew? Uh, Repeat after me. Tohu wabohu. Isn't that fantastic? Tohu wabohu is the Hebrew word. They're two nouns. Two nouns, which... um, uh, the NIV translates as adjectives, formless and void. But actually, they're two nouns. There's something called tohu, and there's something called wabohu. Wabohu is quite uh, hard to translate. It doesn't occur very much in the Old Testament. But it's something to do with wild and chaotic. Um, but tohu is more common. And most, it, it occurs about 20 times in the Old Testament. And it's normally associated with desert or wilderness, a really barren, empty landscape where things find it hard to grow, if you have that in mind. Uh, Tohu means some kind of desert or barren, empty landscape. Tohu wabohu. But then move on a bit. Um, As well as being a desert, it is also 
darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, is it a desert, or is it an ocean? Okay, is it dry, or is it wet? Did someone say yes? Exactly. Is the right answer? Yes. What kind of language is this? It's not poetry, but it's poetic. It's very literary. Uh, the, the writer is, is doing something quite advanced for an ancient text. They're being very creative in the way they put these kind of opposing descriptions together to paint a picture in our minds. And so what, what do deserts and oceans have in common? Well, they're kind of hard to live in. They're not a great place for humans to thrive in. It's, and it's mysterious what this place was like, but it wasn't a great place to live. It was both desert and it was ocean. It was tohu wabohu and it was deep waters. Uh, quick side note. Does this sound like a science textbook? No, and there's a good reason for that, which is that science textbooks weren't written for another two and a half thousand years. Okay, because modern science didn't really get going for another two and a half thousand years. So how sensible is it to read this text asking the questions that we normally ask of science textbooks, like, how old is the earth? Is that a good question to ask of this kind of text? No, because it's not a science textbook. It's trying to say something else. What kind of text is this? Well, technically, you could call it an ancient Near Eastern cosmology or an ancient Near Eastern creation myth. It's mythical. Are you saying it's not true? No, I'm saying it's absolutely drenched in truth. But it's a different kind of truth. If we want to know the truth about who God is and what he's like, if we want to know the truth about who we are and what we're for, then read this myth, if you see what I mean. Um, so, this world that God has created isn't a good place to live. In other words, it needs work. So, God gets to work. Okay, um, notice how he worked. What does his work look like? And God said. So what's that a picture of? Here is someone issuing commands. And lo and behold, the commands get carried out. And this world gets ordered and takes shape. So what sort of person does that kind of thing? What kind of person who's maybe sitting on a throne somewhere <laughs> issues commands which get carried out? And the world, a monarch, absolutely. The world is ordered at his command. Uh, I think it's a picture of a king. But what's the result of his rule? If he's pictured ruling and reigning, issuing these commands, have you ever noticed this? Can you see that? Is the light? Okay. 
six days of creation. And there's a pattern in these six days of creation. Uh, What happens on days one, two, and three? On days one, two, and three, God issues commands. The Lord God, Yahweh Jehovah, issues commands. And the result is... The result is that ca- the result is that chaos falls into some order. On day one, you get a separation into light and darkness. On day two, you get some kind of mysterious separation between waters and sky. It's like before day two, there's just a, a kind of gas above the earth. But then it separates into waters on the earth and clouds above, but in between the sky. And day three, the the waters that cover the earth are piled up to make dry land and, and sea. And so the first three days are all about ordering, ordering the environment, creating boundaries, taking chaos and making environments and making spaces. But then what happens on days four, five, and six? Those spaces that have been created on days one, two, and three get filled with the appropriate living creatures. And those living creatures on day four are the sun, moon, and stars. They're not living. Yeah, I know, but don't, you know, just go with it. Okay, in this picture, the things that live in the sky, that produce light, are created to inhabit the light and the darkness. In day five, God creates creatures to inhabit the waters and the sky, birds and fish. In day six, he creates creatures to live on the dry land that he's created. So do you see the pattern? What's the result of his rule? The result of his rule is that a kind of unfriendly, chaotic, hard-to-live-in world becomes an environment in which living creatures can flourish. And that's the whole point. It's about setting wild creation in order in order to provide an opportunity and an environment in which creation can flourish, in which creatures can do what they were designed to do, in which they can thrive, in which they can be themselves. It's about allowing creation to fulfill itself, to, to become what it was made to be. And I love the way that periodically God sits back like a craftsman and looks at it and says, yep, that's good. That's really what I had in mind. That's what I wanted to see. But it's like a craftsman, when a craftsman looks at his or her workmanship, it somehow reflects them. It displays the character of the person who created it. I think, again, that's part of the picture that the writer is, is trying to paint. Is this making sense with me so far? So we, we have a picture of a heavenly king whose rule, what's his rule like? It's generous. It's all a gift. 
His rule is about creating an opportunity for his creatures to flourish. It's an incredibly giving thing. He doesn't have to do any of this. It's about delighting in creating these things, and especially these living creatures. But it's all a gift. It's generous. It's freeing and releasing. Often when when we see the word rule, we think about restraint and control. We think about not being allowed to do what we want to do. We feel it feels like being limited and putting on some kind of constraint. But that's not the picture here. This is about being given opportunity, being given an environment in which to flourish. And then humans enter the picture. Okay. So our questions here are, who are we and what is our role? And the principles, the principles of being human, I'd suggest, emerge in verses 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Notice in the second of these verses the double instruction. There's a double instruction in verse 28. First of all, be fruitful an increase in number. In other words, do what everything else that I've just created is doing. You know, the, the birds, the fish, the land animals, the plants, the trees, the flowers, they are all going out into this environment that I've ordered and they're being fruitful and flourishing. They're increasing in number. And so part of God's instruction to this newly created human is... Be part of creation. You're part of creation, just like the birds are being fruitful and increasing in number. Go and do the same. It's one, one command which humanity hasn't really struggled to obey throughout human history. We can join in with that quite comfortably. Um, but there's a double instruction here. As well as being fruitful and increasing in number, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. I don't know if you can see that. There's a, there's a red line around the top two blobs. Okay? Because both God and human are rulers. Human is both part of creation, being a creature, being fruitful and increasing in number, but also sharing in God's rule and reign. We have a double role. We have a foot in each camp. Um, And it's summarized in that middle phrase, 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. Be part of creation, but also rule over creation. We're called to be both. Um, So what should human rule look like? How should we subdue the earth? Well, I think it's... I think there's a reason verse 28 follows verse 27. People have debated throughout history, what does mankind being made in the image of God mean? Uh, The word for image here is exactly the same as the word used to describe idols and statues in the Old Testament. Um, in, In the ancient world, people made statues and idols of the gods and placed them in temples. But um, the Israelites were banned from doing that. Why? Because God had already done it. God had made an idol of himself, someone in his image, and it was called human. And he'd placed it in the temple that he'd also created, which was called the earth. And so anything that humans came up with as an idol would be a pale imitation of what God had already done. We were made to be the image of God. So in other words, what should our rule look like? Well, our rule should look like his rule. In other words, just as he ordered creation in order that living things should flourish, so we're called to order creation so that other humans and other living things can flourish, can be themselves, can fulfill what they were designed to do. Um, What should human rule look like? It should look like God's rule, because that's what we're for. We're idols of Yahweh. Um, And I think the confirmation of that comes in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we get another image, another picture. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. He put him in the garden to work the garden and care for it. It's a new picture. Now, I know about gardening. I have an allotment. Um, Let me tell you the story of, uh, I was about to say our allotment, but actually it's my allotment. We we got this allotment as something we could do together. Um, You know, a, a joint project, Emma and I, my wife Emma. And so we turned up on our new plot the first afternoon, and I wanted to do double digging and I wanted to work out a plan for crop rotation, and I wanted to put compost in the soil, and I wanted to, um, you know, do it properly. Emma was asking why we couldn't just open a packet of seeds and sprinkle them on the ground. It became clear very early on that this was not going to be a joint project, and it is now my allotment. Um, but the point is, when we took over, when I took over the plot, It was chaotic. It was wild. There was plenty of life there, 
But it was all brambles and cooch grass and other perennial weeds. The soil was terrible because the person who'd had the plot before hadn't looked after it. It was just a jungle. But over the last 15 years, it's been put in order. And so now, um, you know, I've planted fruit, I've planted apple trees and rhubarb and um, black currants and red currants and all sorts of stuff. We get fruit, we get vegetables, we get flowers. Um, and it's delightful. It's hard work, but it's delightful because I see it flourishing. And it's both beautiful and productive. It gives us food and it gives us flowers. Um, and it's this picture, I think, that we're presented with here of taking something wild and chaotic and disordered, kind of life out of control, and by bringing it into order, by creating an environment, by creating the conditions in which different things will flourish, turning it into something which is beautiful and productive but also something which reflects its creator. My satisfaction in seeing what I've done with this plot of ground, I think is a picture of God's satisfaction when he looks at us and when he looks at the world. It's another image, another picture of what God's kingdom looks like. Well, are you saying that we all need to have gardens or be farmers? No, 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 it's a picture what I'm saying is we all have influence and some of us have authority. It might be influence in our families or in our households. It might be in our jobs. It might be in our hobbies, in our neighborhoods. We all have some measure of influence, some measure of authority. What do we do with it? Do we create environments and structures and order in which people and other created beings can flourish. Because if we do, we're reflecting our creator. Um, as another aside, what I find fascinating here is it's, it's quite obvious that the, these are two different ancient Near Eastern myths. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are telling the story in different ways, and they've been kind of clumsily edited together. But if you look at the principles, if you look at the picture that they paint, and you ask the question, what does God's rule look like? It's uncanny how they're both saying the same thing. So it's a, it's a partnership. In our picture, um, human rule in the kingdom of God is a partnership with God. There's this lovely um, couple of verses in, in chapter 2 where God fetches to man, to human, um, all the things that he's created and asks him to name them, to give them a name. And whatever human decides to call this creature, that's what it's called. Think about the honor that's involved in that. You know, if some friends have their third child and invite you to name their third child. That's an incredible honor. Um, and yet God is, 
inviting human to name everything. And God is happy to let human name everything. So there's enormous choice and freedom that's being given to human in the way in which he carries out his, his rule. But there's one condition. There's only one, thou shalt not, in Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. There's an authority that God reserves for himself. There's an authority that he doesn't allow human to have. Now, there's been a debate throughout history about what this means. What does the the fruit of the tree um, of the knowledge of good and evil, what does that represent? And there are all sorts of different suggestions. But if I can make a suggestion... I think the story so far has shown us a picture of God's rule and what human rule looks like as reflecting God's rule. Now just think about what's involved in this. Imagine that you are human in Genesis, the human in Genesis 2, and you're being invited to set the world in order in such a way that everything can flourish. That's going to involve so many difficult choices. You know, if you put a boundary here, is that going to be releasing or is it going to be restrictive? Have you got the balance right? If you're investing resources, do you invest them here or there in order that creation as a whole can flourish? These are difficult choices. And all the way through chapter 1, we saw God looking at stuff and saying, that's good. God, God exercising the judgment that says, yes, that's the way it should be. Now, you're human in chapter 2. You haven't yet eaten the fruit of that tree. So how are you going to decide? How do you know what's good and what's not good? How do you know the right choices, the right decisions to make as you're carrying out this rule? Well, you have to do it with him. It has to be a partnership. You can't go off on your own. Because he's the one who knows. He knows what's good and what's not good. And I'm sure, given what we saw about the naming, he would invite your opinion. He'd want you to have a say. Because he honors you. And he wants to, you to be involved. He wants you to share his, his rule, his reign. But the ultimate authority about what's good and what's not good, I think, resides with him. And the big question is, Can you live with that? Can you accept it? Because that's the picture. That's the picture of God's kingdom. And it depends on being willing to allow him to have the ultimate say about what's good and what's what's not good. 
And the tragic story of Genesis 3 is that human couldn't accept that. The tragic story of my life is that I can't accept that because I've also eaten the fruit. I know what's good. When I look at the world, I know how it should run. Now, when we look at questions like Brexit, yeah, well, I know what's right. And I know I'm right. I know I'm wise and I know I'm good. And I know that those people on the other side are stupid and evil. The trouble is they've also eaten the fruit. And so they know that they're wise and good. And they know that I'm stupid and evil. And that's the human condition. And that's how wars start. This is the problem. The, the human condition is that we couldn't accept the kingdom, God's rule, the way he'd set it up. We couldn't accept that submission to him, to his authority, to him saying, this is the way it should be. And so we left. Okay, three final thoughts. This sets up the rest of the Bible. Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis pose the question. The question is, Where have I gone? The question is, how are we going to do that? How are we going to return? Where are we going to find humans, human or humans, who can once again return to that role? Reestablish the kingdom on earth as it was created to be. That's the story. That's the plot. That's the question which scripture is is answering the story of Israel. What was Israel's role? What was Israel called to do? Israel was called to step into that place, to become the humans that God wanted in that role, both ordering creation so that it flourished, but submitting to him. And they were able to do neither. Remember the criticism of the prophets again and again of the rulers of Israel, that they weren't stewarding his kingdom in the way that he wanted. They were abusing the poor, the widows, etc., etc. But also, they weren't obeying him. They weren't worshipping and submitting to him. They were wandering far away. So that was Israel's job, and it failed. This is the plot. This is the plot of the Bible. Second thought, in, this is the main thing that occurred to me as I was reflecting on this. In the world, what, what do the world's kingdoms look like? If you think about rulers and servants, how different is it being a ruler in one of the world's kingdoms to being a servant in one of the world's kingdoms. It's like two ends of the spectrum. Everyone wants to be a ruler because who wants to be a servant? They're utterly different roles. 
And yet in God's kingdom, if in God's kingdom, ruling means working to order creation so that other humans and the rest of creation flourishes, is that ruling or is that serving? It's kind of both. Isn't that remarkable? How in God's kingdom, ruling and serving kind of meet in the middle. And it looks like pretty much the same activity. I've got some other words for that same activity. You could also call it love. Ordering the world, ordering creation so that other creatures, other humans can flourish. You could call it generosity. You could call it life. You could call it being fully human. It all seems to converge into a single point in God's kingdom. It's what we were created for. It's where we find fulfillment in this dual role of being rulers and servants, of being creation and ruler. Which leads me on to the final point. Ever since Eve handed the the fruit to Adam and said, have a bite, has anyone perfectly fulfilled that role? Has anyone managed to step into that role where they are both ruler with incredible authority, but also perfect obedience? Has anyone filled that role? I would say yes, one person. And that's exactly the point. Um, When Jesus came along and announced that the kingdom of heaven was near, I don't think he was saying, look over there. I think he was saying, look here. This is what it looks like. As Graham Kendrick wrote, This is our God, the servant king, someone who has incredible authority but exercises it in order to set people free. And in perfect obedience, every single day in perfect obedience to his father. That's the picture that we see when we read about Jesus in the Gospels. And when he says, follow me, I think this is what he's saying. He's saying, follow me. Join me in this role. Follow me is another way of saying, enter the kingdom. 